0: All right, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. And I am thrilled to welcome you all to today's conversation on building good jobs into America's infrastructure investments. Um, At the Economic Opportunities Program, we advance promising policies, strategies, ideas to help low- and moderate-income Americans connect to opportunity and to thrive in today's changing economy. Um, and we're particularly excited about today's conversation on infrastructure jobs because actually within the economic opportunities program This is an area that we have um, spent a lot of time uh, Not only talking about but researching and looking at how communities across the country um, Organize programs that can help their local residents build the skills and abilities that they need to connect to um building trades jobs, including those uh, involved in rebuilding America's infrastructure. Um, Investment in in infrastructure are important uh, to America's future economic growth, uh, but many communities have used these investments to also really think about expanding economic opportunity. So, uh, and we we put a number of the resources that we've uh, um, published over the years on construction jobs out on the resource table if you happen to see them or if you miss them, you can take a look on your way out. but I also wanted to mention that you know about eight years ago, we did a survey of, of um, organizations across the country. We had over 350 organizations respond, telling us about how they connected people to um, training services and other services to connect them to jobs in the building trades. And we're going to be redoing that survey so that uh, communities across the country will know who's in their community that can help them find the talent pipeline that they need. Um, So we're going to be launching that survey this Friday at noon. If you know somebody who should be responding to our survey, who's engaged in this work of connecting people to jobs in the building trades, um, please pass along that information to them because we're, uh, we're excited that we're gonna be doing that survey again, okay. I'm done with my survey plug. Uh, And now I'm really, really thrilled to be introducing an absolutely fabulous panel that we have uh, to talk with you about infrastructure jobs. Um, I need to do actually two more things before I I get to that one. Uh, Please do silence your phones, um, but please do tweet. Our, Our hashtag for today's conversation is TalkGoodJobs. Um, And I also do need to thank the supporters of our Working in America series. They're tremendous um, partners to us. Uh, We couldn't do it without them. They uh, contribute not only the resources, but they've been great thought partners to us. So we really are grateful to um, our supporters at the Prudential Foundation, the Walmart Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Cerdna Foundation. Um, Okay, so as I mentioned, folks, bios are in your materials. So I'm just going to briefly um, put uh, names to faces, but they're a terrific group. So please do take a look at your at your materials. Um, so I will start to my very far left. Uh, to the right for you is Denise Fairchild, who is president and CEO of Emerald Cities Collaborative. Um, next to Denise is Addie Tomer, a fellow Metropolitan Policy Program at the Bus- Brookings Institution. Uh, next to Addie is uh, uh, Mayor Dana Red, Mayor of Camden, New Jersey. Um, and next we have uh, Rick Moore, Vice President, Director of Community Relations at Swinnerton Incorporated. And very delighted to welcome Lori Aratani, reporter at the Washington Post to moderate today's conversation. And Lori, I hand it over to you, thank you. Well, thank you.
1: I'm pleased to welcome you to the Aspen Institute. We're glad you can be part of today's conversation about how investments in infrastructure can be used not only to rebuild crumbling roads, bridges, power grids, and ports, but to create quality jobs for workers of diverse backgrounds. We have a distinguished panel of experts representing the government, the private sector, the policy, and nonprofit world here to share their experience and expertise. In recent days, infrastructure has been making headlines, and as someone someone who has written about crumbling roads, bridges, and subway systems for years, I've never seen so much excitement around these kinds of investments, but but sometimes overlooked in those photos of the giant sinkholes on 14th Street um, and the crumbling bridges are the opportunity that infrastructure investments present in creating quality jobs for a diverse workforce. These folks have some great insights to share, and I know you'll I know I'm gonna learn a great deal, I know you all too. So take advantage of their expertise and don't be shy, please ask questions. That's it, we'll get started. So I think we'll start off the conversation talking a little bit about sort of the overview of what we're looking at. I know that lots of folks have heard the $1 trillion number, which sounds so large, but which I have read is only a drop in the bucket exactly when it comes to infrastructure investment. Um, but D, I know that Um, infrastructure can be a lot of different things um, to different people and at Brookings you all have done some really significant research and analysis of the topic over the last several years so I hope you'll tell us what you and your colleagues um, how you all define infrastructure what occupations and industries you sort of include in that and give us a sense of how large that workforce is, um, and who, who those folks are, where they come from, what their background is.
2: Yeah, sure, thanks, Lori. and thanks to Maureen and her team here um, at Aspen for, uh, for putting this event together, frankly, it's a really important conversation. Um, uh, humor me for a second and kind of think about in your head, um, what, do you, what do you think an infrastructure job is, right? Um, you know, I think for most of you, it probably involves a hard hat, uh, something I've never had on before. Uh, but um, it's probably the idea of, of building something, right? I think that's what we tend to think about infrastructure as. And, and really, that kind of archetype has been pretty firmly ensconced in our policy discourse for really decades now. I think most, most of it can go back to the Eisenhower era and building out the interstates. But really, I think what really put it in modern terms is um, uh, George um, H.W. Bush, right, Bush I, if you will, Talking about jobs, jobs, jobs um, for the infrastructure bill that he signed um, during his tenure. And you know what, what that tends to kind of put us on a path to though is really an understatement of just how important infrastructure is to our economy. So our team at Brookings, one of our former colleagues, is actually in the audience right now, so really a broad team of about four or five people, put together a new approach to looking at infrastructure. And what we want to do was say, let's get past those hard hat style jobs, right? And really understand what it means in our economy. And what we found is that there's, looking across 42 industries, think about that for a second, 42 industries are in infrastructure, and this is why it's so important, I have my notes open, so I hit these exact numbers that we spent all this time doing, Um, 95 occupations. 95 different jobs in our economy are related to infrastructure. And what's most notable here, let's go even bigger than those, 14.5 million workers. Work in the infrastructure industry by our definition, that's about one out of every 10 workers. All that talk you hear about, manufacturing jobs, healthcare jobs, this is bigger, right? So, what does infrastructure actually mean? It's not just building stuff, it's how we make sure that water can get to our homes every day, right? So we can uh, take a shower, brush our teeth, right? That kind of cook food at night. Um, It's how we can make sure that the goods that all of you consume, I assume probably about a third to a quarter of you are Amazon Prime members in the room, how do you think the stuff gets to your house, right? Um, It's not just the material movers who are working for UPS and in Amazon warehouses. It's all across the economy to actually move those materials. So it's a really big part of what we do. Now the other side there that really matters is that um, not only are 77% of those jobs in those kind of um, uh, service occupations, the actual uh, maintenance and operations of our staff, it's also a ton of high-end design jobs too, right? So it's not just construction, it's all across the spectrum. Now one final point to your question, Lori, and then I promise I'll stop, is that there's also the component here of the pay and to the question of who is doing these jobs. And infrastructure jobs pay a premium at lower ends of the income spectrum and in particular, have very low skill level barriers to entry. So in other words, you don't need a bachelor's to get into many of these jobs. And many of the jobs, as I think we'll hear more about today, actually on, offer on job tra- or on-site job training, right? So you can actually come to work without necessarily a lot of background in, in these various infrastructure jobs and get the training you need to get on a sustainable path um, to a, kinda, um, a healthy income for you and your families.
1: Great. Thank you. That's great. Well, now we'll hear from one of the folks that employs a lot of people that work in those jobs. So Rick, I know that Swinerton has a long and rich history. It's based in one of my favorite cities, San Francisco. Um, So I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the company and about the workforce and the different types of jobs um, folks that work for
3: you do. Okay. Thank you, Lori, And thank you to the Aspen Institute for the invite. Um, Swinerton builders were general contractors Again, we're general contractors. We're not engineers or architects. We build buildings. We dig the hole and bring it up. Um, We've been in business since 1888. We're 129 years old. We're privately held. We have approximately 2,500 people within the Swinnerton organization. And because we are general general contractors, we build, we deal with the trades. The laborers, the carpenters, the, ar- the um, engineers, um, the electricians, the plumbers—all the trades that would do what that would build a building. With that said, on the other side of that, we also have a good infrastructure in terms of our professional core group. Because even though we do build buildings, we also have to have IT people, we have to have um, architects on board, we have to have uh, business development, HR, an incredible accounting system because last year we did approximately like $3 billion worth of work across the United States. Now, as I said, we started in 1888 out in Bakersfield, California. We were very instrumental in rebuilding um, San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake, the Fairmont Hotel, the courthouses we did. Um, Even going into the type of work with infrastructure, we're looking at, you know, we worked on the Hoover Dam that we worked on the Panama Canal, you know the locks moving forward with that. And again, that's all um, employing um, craft personnel. But we also have to have uh, the construction craft workforce in place as well as our professional, you know, people. Um, like I said, we're a privately held company. <clears throat> our markets, again, we're general contractors. We do with the federal, and we also we are private uh, general contractor as well. A lot of our clients are repeat business, um, large developments throughout the United States. We're in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Orange County, all over Hawaii, Atlanta, Tennessee. We have a broad footprint, but we're not international. Um, And and again, like I said, I want to thank the um, Aspen Institute for inviting me to, to address you.
1: I feel like given the age of our infrastructure, I, I have to make some kind of joke about some of that work that you did post San Francisco earthquake still being there. <laughs> still standing, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> Maybe we'll get back to that. So that's, that's a sign of the good quality work that y'all do. <laughs> well, great. Well, now we'll move on to Mayor, Mayor Red. So Camden, New Jersey has had some tough years in recent decades. But as mayor since 2010, you have led the city in making significant progress. So you've moved moved Camden from state control to local control, you've improved the city's credit rating, and you've overhauled the police department. South Jersey Magazine has described you as a commanding woman who's not afraid to make tough decisions, and possibly the one person who can really change Camden. And it already looks like you have. You've also led some significant building redevelopment programs in Camden, um, commercial buildings, educational facilities, medical and other projects. So your approach to economic development has been inclusive. Lots of folks I know talk about gentrification and, and closed opportunities, but you've really tried to open it up to many folks. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, I know we all would love to hear a little bit about how you've done this um, and the role that programs such as pre-apprenticeship training programs play in helping open opportunity to residents um, so that they can be part of this economic boom and this economic growth.
4: Thank you, Lori, and thank you also to the Aspen Institute for including me in this wonderful panel. It's great to be here to talk about uh, the work that we're doing in the city of Camden And before I can even get into the pre-apprenticeship training programs, which we are really proud uh, to have launched in 2016, I think a quick look back at where Camden has been uh, will give you a greater appreciation for where we are in the present day. So when I started as mayor in 2010, uh, we had to make a lot of difficult decisions on the front end. Uh, We were faced with a a fiscal crisis, a $26.5 million deficit. Uh, for a city a size of 77,000 in population. So we were heavily reliant on state funding in order to balance our budget. So immediately I knew I had to come in and tackle our fiscal uh, bottom line and deal with some of the structural deficit issues that have been Uh, in the city for a long time, and so that led us to the restructuring of our police department, and thank God I'm still here after going through that
0: process.
4: (laughs) But in going through that process and being innovative uh, has allowed us to not only reduce uh, crime in the city of Camden, it's allowed us to advance public safety. And I I say public safety is necessary because it is an underpinning uh, for the work that you see transforming Camden in the present day. The second major issue we tackled uh, was uh, public education. So in 2012, along with Camden holding the uh, notorious titles of being the most dangerous city in America, in 2012 we were named as the most impoverished city in America. We had 23 out of 26 uh, failing public schools. And so, again, another tough decision was necessary to improve the lives of children, youth, and families by calling for a full state intervention in our school district uh, with our governor and in partnership with the community. So that became the second leg in the stool. But because we made those tough and difficult decisions, public safety, public education, creating choice for families, led us to what we are now experiencing as uh, economic development, over 2.5 billion dollars being invested in the city of Camden with companies that are committed to Camden, calling Camden home. And some of those companies include Holtec International, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers built their practice facility and administrative offices on the Camden waterfront. Uh, Contemporary Graphics, which has uh, embraced our local hiring program where over 46% of their employees are local Camden residents working at their facility, among a number of other businesses that are coming to the city. So when you talk about infrastructure, Uh, You talk about not only the roadway projects, the bridge projects that we're all hoping will be funded uh, in this administration, but it's also the Eds and Meds that have created a new identity for Camden, New Jersey, where our Eds and Meds have really become the largest employers of Camden residents Uh, in our city and now we have the next wave coming in under the Economic Opportunity Act of 2013. We're seeing the next wave of investment that has led to uh, job creation and job retention. So quickly, because I know my time is winding down, the pre-apprenticeship program was launched last year designed to train residents in a 10-week program a pre apprenticeship program in collaboration with our building trades, with uh, local nonprofits, because I believe as a government official the importance of engaging nonprofits in solutions based work. Uh, in cities like Camden, that helps us to really meet the challenges and the needs of children, youth, and families. And so our Camden Construction Career Initiative, we call it 3CI because government is great for acronyms. Uh, But again, uh, we're seeing uh, not only the interest, but we're beginning to see signs of success where residents are trained and placed on many of the construction projects. The last thing I'll say is it's not just about a job, training just for a job but training for a career. So having that long view, because once we get residents with the required skill set, so whether it's a welder, uh, whether it is an electrician, plumber, a bricklayer, they can take that skill set and go anywhere in New Jersey or throughout the region. But again, this is our starting point where we are now after we've laid the building blocks for Camden's transformation.
1: That's a great point because I know a lot of folks, you know, my mom has a saying that she always says, no one fixes anything till the horse leaves the barn. right? You don't fix the fence. But it's important to think about these investments we're making in training for the long term, right? not just for this job, we're gonna get you a job you know, for the next six months. We wanna get you a job for the rest of your life as long as you wanna do that. And also in our infrastructure investments, we don't wanna just patch that hole. We wanna keep going back and patching it. We wanna make sure that these are investments that last. So I know Denise, you're gonna have, Denise has some exciting things. She is with the Emerald Cities Collaborative, which works with communities across the country with two very important goals, advancing sustainable infrastructure, while at the same time promoting the creation of sustainable and inclusive employment and economies. So we'd like to hear a little bit about how you take two things that I think lots of folks are interested in figuring out how to do, how you put them together and make them work.
5: Great, thank you. Uh, I too want to thank Aspen for uh, being a part of this this discussion. It's an important time to thank you very much to have a question about how we rebuild America and and how do we take it from making sure it's not a low-road economy but a high-road economy. And that's the work of Emerald Cities, and we do this in coalition. We see ourselves as market intermediaries, and so we we bring together coalitions of labor, business community some people call it public private we want to make sure it's public private and community organizations that are in uh regional marketplaces so we want to change regional economies. so we're in new york and we're in seattle and we're in cleveland and we're in los angeles and it's building these coalitions to figure out how we build a sustainable development economy we have uh, three goals actually it's how do we green our cities Uh, So that includes our energy infrastructure, our water infrastructure, our sewer infrastructure, our transportation infrastructure. So how do we make our cities uh, greener? And with that investment, we rebuild our communities. And so it's not only just creating jobs, but making sure that the jobs are uh, quality jobs and that they're accessible to the citizens of that region. And then the third is equity. How do we make sure low-income communities of color that have historically been left out of the mainstream economy get to play in this new economy that we're creating. So it's the triple bottom line, environment, economy, and equity. But it's that coalition infrastructure, that civic infrastructure that really makes the difference because we're driving both the demand and the supply side and bringing the pieces, the elements, of this economy together in a way that they currently aren't brought together. They're very fragmented. So you have the business community on one side and they're, they're creating the jobs and you've got the training institutions over here and, and they're spinning in their own orbit and not connecting to the demand side. Um, and then all of the training institutions are doing different things. There's a apprenticeship programs and there's the community colleges and there's the community-based training organizations. And they're not talking to each other, and it's very confusing for someone who's trying to get on this pathway to figure out what is the right pathway and how do I get the shortcut to to the job. So our job at ML Cities is to bring all this together so it's easy to, to build the sector. Um, there's some predictability, some reliability, some consistency about how these economies grow. So we work with um, counties, for example, uh, the uh, Cuyahoga County, for example, we have. Um, five wind turbine projects being built. They call it the LICO project. First, uh, wind turbine projects in Lake Erie. Uh, we are helping to build the economic conclusion component of it, and like Adi spoke to, it's not just building the turbines, but it's also every supply that goes into that project of the next three years. It's going to be the transportation, the food, you know, all of the resources that need to make that project work. We brought together over 300 um uh, vendors in, from the community that are really interested and ready to engage in that project. We work with LA County. Um, they have what they call the Southern California uh, Regional Energy Efficiency Network, 120 jurisdictions within the Southern California region that's trying to figure out how to make their buildings smarter uh, and more energy efficient and how to save money through with use of energy efficiency and solar um, investments. And we provide the economic inclusion services for those places. Everything from defining the policy of economic inclusion to figuring out how we um, bring minority women, veteran, and small contractors to the table, how we, again, organize the workforce infrastructure, and more importantly, how we monitor um, and uh, report on how well we're doing with economic <coughs> inclusion. Um, and the last I'll say is so we've we worked with counties, we've work uh, we worked on water and sewer projects in Portland. We have a huge affordable and public housing initiative where we're rebuilding our affordable housing projects and making sure that the residents in those buildings are a part of the rebuilding process. Um, and it's not just the construction work.
0: One of the things that we're
5: finding is that you can build a smart building and then it has no operational efficiencies so the uh, programs and operating engineers architects engineers construction workers but also operating the facilities people are are key to sort of building a a greener city so that's the work that we do and it's uh, pretty exciting even though there are challenges
1: well that's good i mean you point out an important thing which is I think lots of people who work in this industry, whether they're in education or they're in private companies, you know, they all, they all have good aims, right? And a lot of times we work in silos or isolation, so it's great to have groups like yours, Denise, that can bring folks through and that can help people communicate. It seems so simple, right? But a lot of times we're just in our own little world, so that's so great. So I think we're going to move on. Um, and don't forget all those great questions that I know you all have. You want to talk about the miracle in Camden. I know you definitely want to know more about that. Um, but we're going to take a deeper dive into these infrastructure jobs. Now, Adi talked a little bit about how, you know, we, we think of infrastructure, we think of those hard hats, but, but you know, they're changing. Just as, as, as technology is advancing, what you think of those old jobs, you know, may be different. So I know Rick described what frontline workers and Um, Swinnerton do, Um, Adi, I'm hoping you can talk about what you and your colleagues have found in looking at sort of the infrastructure workforce, you know, the types of skills and tools that that workers need today, how they might differ from before, Um, and tell me, so tell us about what today's infrastructure jobs look like.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and because of the nature of, of at least our definition, and I think you heard it from everyone on the panel, right, that it is it is a lot more than just that kind of hard hat construction work. And even in construction, it actually causes all kinds of different uh, folks to work there. And what, what we're finding is that Inside the infrastructure work, it's modernizing just like every other part of the economy, right? Um, so, one of the unique ways that we can track, and this is to be a, um, uh, give credit to our federal statistical agencies who make everyone's lives easier. Um, that's a plug for federal stats, I think, uh, in this climate. Um, uh, they allow us to actually codify what we all do in our day jobs. So I want to really quickly talk about a pretty wonky subject, but the topic of tools. Uh, So think about when you're sitting at your uh, workstation at your proverbial, you know, at your desk or your house, whatever you're doing, that's like a tool, right? Use a computer, right? So overall, infrastructure jobs are, on average, are going to use 14 different tools in their work. The average American only uses six. So think about that for a second. I mean these are really First of all, these are really creative, smart, um, multifaceted um, requirements of, of, of the workers. So the, the workers have to be smart to have all those multifaceted requirements. So um, that is a um, unique um, component of this work, right? Right away. Um, th- the other thing is that they also tend to have really high levels of knowledge requirements in eleven different content areas. I want to read these because it's maybe things you don't necessarily think about: physics, geography, engineering, um, and technology alone, right? I don't know about you. I don't use physics in my job at all. Uh, but it doesn't take um, a rocket scientist to think about how, in so much of infrastructure work, it requires some pretty good knowledge about physics work, right? How, what it not listed see, or also geology, right? So these are different kind of um, topics. You may have not thought about them since you were in high school as like a topic area, right? But these are things people use actively on their jobs every day. And you know what I kind of want to kind of emphasize one more time. I know I talked about it a little bit in the intro is that eighty plus percent of these workers right, are gonna get short and long term training on the job, right? So this is something where not only does it require a breadth of skills, it's a huge amount of different um, uh, different tools that they're gonna need to kind of get a handle on, is that actually they can learn it on the job too, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a great set of collaboration between private sector employers and public sector employers, there's a huge amount of infrastructure work done in the public sector. And really our labor market's trying to work as effectively as they can to get people in those spots. When you add it in again to the fact that there are very low barriers to entry to these jobs um, and that they pay well at lower ends of the income spectrum, there is so much to like here for how we're providing economic opportunity for the American workforce. Okay.
1: Well, Rick, I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about um, what your company, what your workforce policies are and the benefits that your workers can, um, can enjoy and take advantage of.
3: Okay, thank you. But before I hit on that, um, I'm hearing issues around, you know, infrastructure and the, the skilled workforce. And one of the challenges that I see with the skilled workforce, especially getting youth into the skilled trades, is that in construction you're working as long as there's a contract. And once that contract is over with, you're off to the next project. And hopefully the youth that are going through these training programs to so the uh, community-based organizations are building that relationship with that employer, that subcontractor, so they can go to the next job. Because if they don't go to the next job, they're back at the hall. Or they're back at home getting frustrated because, again, they're not collecting that paycheck that um, in the skilled trades, you know, is quite, um, it's quite, it's quite... You make a lot of money, you know, and to to keep that going. So again, to get that relationship so you can go to the next job with your employer. Now, Swinnerton, we're finding that in a lot of our um, interviews and our opportunities, we have to be able to define how we give back to the community. What is our footprint? What community-based organizations are you supporting? What is your retention rate like? What is your past performance? of getting people economic development you know, through the programs that the cities, the counties, the ports have in place. And with that, we have to make sure that those policies are translated throughout everywhere because you can have all these policies, but if you don't have people monitoring them, if you don't have the staff that knows the obstacles of, um, of making sure that these programs do succeed, what happens? Nothing. And then the contractors, you know, will come in with their core workforce and go on to the next job. Meanwhile, the people that you got out of the community-based organizations, they're back in their community. Right. So again, it's to make sure that our policies are well-rounded, that we're addressing our clients, our clients' clients, because and a lot of our work is private development. But within that private development, our our. Um, Owners have development agreements with the cities and within that development agreement is that workforce component to make sure that you hire let's say 50 percent of your workforce you know from the city and county that you're working in another policy that we have is to make sure that we help educate our youth we're finding that in the school system they don't push construction and that's the reason why the vocational uh, programs have gone away Um, I'm glad to see that there are a lot of STEM programs that are in place because kids children are going to have math, English, and problem-solving skills in order to get into the workforce. And when you're dealing with that type of program and dealing with community-based organizations where they have the hard skills and the soft skills of how to maneuver in that construction trade because it is hard work. Now, on the other side of policies, dealing with um, community colleges, and San Francisco does a program called City Build, which is a really good model of making sure that the city and county of San Francisco have the, the employees in their program. So when a contractor needs workers, they call City Build and someone get referred to them. And then they can get onto the job site. But they also have a professional service side where people have changed careers. And we have a lot of um, people through the professional training program who are degree, who are going through an internship program with large general contractors, who when they come out, they become project engineers because they're going through the construction management <coughs> course as well. And, and again, making sure that you know our uh, students or the youth are ready to go into the workforce and that we adhere to the policies that the city and counties you know, put out. In terms of benefits of working with Swinerton, <clears throat> um, like I said, we've been in business 129 years our contractor license is number 92 in the state of California, so we're one of the oldest. So we do have good policies and procedures in place that are competitive with everybody else. You know, the, um, the opportunities of being able to, let's say, get in the elevator, push a button, and you can rise throughout the company. And that is one of the things that can you know, keep us as a, an attractive employer, because there are you know, opportunities you know, that can come out of that.
1: Oh, that's a great summary of just all the different ways in which you try and get, you know, Adi talked about all the, different, all the different kinds of jobs in there, and it's a great summary of the, all the different ways that you allow people to find a path within
3: your company. Absolutely, that's and really then also, again, working within the high school system of dealing with the pathway programs, you know, and, and dealing in neighborhoods where people are less fortunate and letting the, letting the youth know that there are opportunities after for you, we're going to show you, and we're going to show you that people, people that look like you are out there building those projects. We were just talking um, in the back room about a project we just f- finished in Watts Jordan high school. And we put together a construction club for two years with these kids that we showed them how to build a project and we had classroom activities. And they taking taken them from Watts. Then we took them out to Beverly Hills to another high rise and to see their eyes light up. Because a lot of these youth don't ever get outside their community to see what is out there. And if, you, but if we don't open up the door and give them the insight and the opportunity, how are they going know? On? And once they see that, it gives them encouragement. So as they're going from middle school to high school, they can remember, hey, the skill trades or the professional side, the engineer, the project manager, entrepreneurship that are out there, or you become your own owner. I mean, so it's, it's a wide field, but we have to make sure that we give them the opportunity that is there.
1: And I guess folks have to remember that if you work in your community, you're probably more likely to invest and value that community, yes. which I'm sure you've done. Um, you know, once again, it's that theme of of connections and communications, right? Communication, right? Making sure that that you've got those workers, that you connect them and communicate. You know, people communicate their needs. You know, Denise, um, you know, there's this perception out there that you know, there's all these great jobs, all these great benefits, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't take a lot. You know. You know, you just sign up, you, you put in your application, you'll be there. But I'm sure that you've learned in your experience it's not necessarily that easy for folks to just walk in, and especially these days with a lot of advances. So we're ho- I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about some of the challenges that workers face when they try and, you know, they decide they want to they pursue careers in this, in this growing industry. But what are the challenges that they face? Well, even before we
5: talk about the challenges within the industry, let's just talk about the challenges even thinking about the industry. I think there's a whole issue about, uh, you know, we as parents don't want our kids to go into construction, you know, or infrastructure. You know, they see that as um, uh, jobs of the past as opposed to understanding the, the technology and the as you were talking about, how many 14 different tools that have been Used and understanding construction is, in fact, particularly apprenticeship programs. It is a degree; it's a college degree because everybody wants their kids to get a, you know, a, a bachelor's, a, a master's degree, and go on and become a, a technology or rocket scientist or something of that nature. So we have a real marketing issue in terms of why the construction sector, the infrastructure sector is in, in fact a, a good place to get more money than a PhD could get, right? So that's number one. But once you actually get it, once the light bulb goes on and you feel that this is good, it is, most of it is particularly in the, um, the energy sector, it is 50, 60% construction related. It is hard hat related. And it is hard work. And it is seasonal. Um, and you have to have a driver's license because once you finish one job, you have to get to the next. Um, and then it's not any, e- the industry is not an equal employment uh, opportunity employer, I think. You know, women have a really hard time in this sector because you have to get up early in the morning and you got to figure out where you're going to get your childcare um, and who's going to take care of your kids during, you know, the hours that, uh, that you have to be at work. Uh, I don't know that it hires African-Americans at a, at a very significant number as well. So um, there is the question of access, and, and then there's a, a, a question of how you actually get into the unions themselves. All right? So the unions have become a lot more open. They've become a lot more diverse, but it's not universal. There's still a lot of you know historical experiences about exclusion and uh, the lack of diversity. And even when you get into the apprenticeship programs, I remember talking to... A black uh, female underwater welder. <laughs> Tell me she's not a woman warrior. Tell me she's not a warrior. This, this is a bad lady here. Okay, <laughs> but you know, I mean, she had the pledge. You know, she had the pledge to be, you know, a part of the, a, a part of the, the network, and, 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 to be tough and strong. The support system is not there, and so you really have to figure out how to, you know, how to tough it out and to work in a, a male-dominated culture. Uh, particularly if you're a woman, but even if you're a person of color and you look different from most other people that are on the job, um, it's, it's tough to, to figure out how you're going to get accepted and to get into um, being accepted as one of the boys, one of the girls. And that's why community-based organizations are really important to provide that support network. Not only getting access, but supporting people, at least for the first 18, 18 months while they're sort of becoming acclimated to a whole new industry. So those are some of the some of the challenges that um, that we face, I and mean, a lot of it's just uh, the personal lives. Some of it's structural, um, but people who are in the industry really talk about how rewarding it is once they get settled into the experience.
1: Well, thanks, Well Mary Red. We're hoping you can talk a little bit about. You know, we know it's not just jobs; it's quality jobs, it's careers. So, how did you make that pitch to folks in? to businesses and to folks in Camden um, when you started uh, jump-starting programs and creating programs to get folks to work and to get folks to invest in the community?
4: Well, you know, certainly I want to acknowledge all of the, the conversation on this, this topic and the challenges and the barriers uh, to break through in order to create access and opportunity for residents and particularly minorities coming from low income communities. Uh, first, we had to start with some of the service providers to get them to start to work together. Uh, everyone was working in their own silo, serving the same population, and you know not really sharing that data. And we, we sort of took this mindset, um, my administration uh, along with our, our practitioners, Um, after we had been involved with the uh, Department of Justice National Forum on Youth Violence Prevention so we learned a lot about again talking across agencies and bringing everybody together and so once we sort of got folks to buy into that vision and break through that resistance then the next was dealing with um, the community and residents who have been promised Uh, so many false hopes and promises in the past that they didn't believe that this was a a unique opportunity. It was, you know, we've heard this before. What makes this different? How are you going to benefit me? And that's great. You're bringing all these businesses to Camden, but what does that translate for me and my family? And Mayor, I need a job. But I also knew the importance of not only giving them hope, Uh, that they can do it, and encouraging them. I think women, we're more nurturers, right, in our leadership. Um, But again, getting the right people on the bus, getting the right collaborations, whether it's working with the community college, working with our local one-stops, working with community-based organizations, and also faith-based institutions, because a lot of our residents are connected to our clergy members and our faith-based institutions. Once we sort of had a a framework for a customized job training program uh, on welding, because we had the positions in welding through a very active port, we couldn't find a welder qualified in the region. And that just absolutely blew my mind. So we began to get residents funneled into the welding program now the pre-apprenticeship program. And so once we had that wheel turning, I approached our businesses and say, look, you have to do your part. We're happy that you're committed to Camden, that you want to call Camden home, but if you really want to make a difference in transforming this city, we need to transform the lives of people. And so we need to make sure that through our community investment agreements, which are the equivalent of a community benefit agreement, that there's a percentage of local hires but also a percentage of local sourcing because we want to see the small business community tie in and meet their new neighbors, if you will, and source a number of the materials that many of these jobs will need, not just on the construction side, but also on the operational side once businesses are functioning and their doors are open. So uh, again, the way we have you know, sort of monitored this and, and wrap our arms around uh, this work this body of work is through our community investment agreements which we call CIA mm-hmm.
1: and once you do those do you find that once you've done the first few that companies understand them and they're more once they
4: see the results it gets a little easier so or does I think it? there are those companies that buy in to mm-hmm. the vision and then there are those companies that need to be convinced Uh, And then to Denise's comment, and so I'll be a little more direct, I guess, Um, you know, (laughs) in working with the uh, building trades. I mean, we literally had to use the bully pulpit at some point in time uh, in order to create access Um, for minority residents for uh, women that want to go into the construction and career uh, in the trades so again I don't mind uh, putting up a fight and advocating for um, residents to have access and so uh, we continue that dialogue, but we also continue to monitor, as my good friend Rick mentioned, the importance of evaluation, of monitoring, of using evidence-based strategies in the work that we're doing now in Camden. So we've taken a different approach. And, and
5: if I could also leverage that, that point, is the, the mayor's point, is that in our Portland project, we it was a $100 million water, uh, sewer water project, and it was a community benefit agreement that a coalition uh, got passed. And the developers came in and they were sort of, oh my gosh, you know, it's always resisting. You know, what is this? I don't like it. But because we had a very proactive compliance, monitoring compliance team of community activists, and if they needed Jane the Plumber next week, at th- you know, Thursday at 3 o'clock, they were able to source in the community Jane the Plumber to show up at 3 o'clock. And so it wasn't punitive for the contractor. We became the hiring hall for the contractors to deliver the quality workers they needed to meet their their targets, their hiring targets, or their contracts. So we really talk about it as proactive compliance, engaging the community and understanding the needs of the employer and making sure that we are there at construction draws or these these biweekly meetings to figure out what is the manpower staff, staff utilization plan and how we can help the contractors to succeed. That contractor, when the project was over, was calling the mayor and saying, this is the best thing since sliced cheese, you know? Because she, it was a woman contractor, Prime, who was calling her subs and said, oh, you're not meeting your targets, and uh, what what can we do to help you? Became very involved in seeing how it benefited the project as well as meeting the goals of the city.
3: And that's one of the things, what you just said, uh, Denise, about the building trades and the unions, and making sure that they interact with the community-based organizations, because in a lot of work that uh, Swinton has and a lot of contractors have, we're union contractors, and we cannot hire directly out of a community-based organization. We have to make sure that we have good relationships with the CBOs so they can refer an employee to us, and then us in turn do a uh, recommendation letter to the union, and hopefully they'll dispatch them back to us. Because again, we can't hire directly from the um, CBOs. Now there are some trades like the laborers and the carpenters that have hunting license. And they can walk on any construction project and ask if they're hiring um, or how can I get a job and we can hire on the spot there. But again, with the skill with the skill trades, the MEPs and dealing with the community-based organizations and the building trades, making sure that we're all at the table. Because if that communication is not clear, the result is not going to be positive. And then there's another issue going on where there's so much work out there right now, we don't have the construction workforce to do it. Now everybody wants these big, beautiful buildings, these scientific <laughs> buildings, these green buildings, but there's not the workforce out there. And again, that gets back to to schools who do not advocate construction, and because of that they, they want everybody to get into college where everybody's not going to get into college, but then how do you get into the trades? And once you get into the trades for minorities and women, how are you treated? I mean, there's a, real cycle out there that has to be penetrated and it has to be um, dealt with sincerely but again like I said once the contract is over with contractors we're off to the next job and we're taking our core workforce with us unless that apprentice or that new employee created that relationship with that employer where they will take them to the next job and that's where in the um, retention because I know in a lot of cities that, um, that we're working in we're asked you know our retention rate We're asked how many um, people who have been incarcerated, what is your program to get them the second chance out into the workforce? This is all the infrastructure that we have to have. And dealing with the um, infrastructure work with the federal government, you know, when you get into Executive Order 11246 for a contractor, those 16 action steps mean something. And you have to have these policies and procedures in place to be able to document that you are an equal opportunity employer, as Denise was mentioning.
1: See, so that's a good point. You need infrastructure to help the infrastructure jobs, right? <laughs> right.
3: Infrastructure is many different things. Right. Well, so. In fact,
5: when the people have been talking about infrastructure, says, we well, make sure you have a workforce infrastructure a part of your exactly. infrastructure investment yeah. because they're, they're, the pipeline is not there, and, and it's going to be a big problem. Yeah,
2: we have ran these numbers yeah. recently. I mean, there's a... Uh, we tend to forget that you can restart conversations in Washington, but the situation on the ground might be a little bit different. Yes. And last time we had this one, right, was was after the Great Recession. And there was huge gaps, right, in the employment, you know, the labor market side on, on construction in particular. And that, that gap is gone, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. if you're talking about, you know, looking at an infrastructure investment, um, it's kind of leading to immediate job gains. I mean, a lot of those folks are, are employed, right? So mm-hmm. it's actually, how do we how do we focus on, on disadvantaged and at-risk populations on, on the ground? We're talking about a lot of public dollars here you can really see a lot of merged benefits how do we look at it that way and bring people into that industry? And, and other numbers I didn't even talk about yet, which is, I think you're alluding that we've got a lot of retirements coming in this sector too, broadly. Mm-hmm. So we've got to actually backfill some of these jobs we already have. So, so it's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of opportunity. Um, and we need to make sure that all peoples can kind of get into the into yeah. these really stable occupations once they're in there. Yeah.
1: yeah, That segues great into something we wanted to talk to Rick about, ask Rick about, which is you described a lot of the benefits, um, some great benefits at Swinerton. Um, Talk about how you think that makes you competitive. That makes you compete for when there's a lot of demand, but not necessarily a lot of workforce out there. And I'd also love to hear about once you get folks in the door, particularly folks who might not be see a lot of people that look like them in those worlds. How you how you retain them, um, women, minorities, you know, veterans that are coming back um, and, and starting second careers. What are some strategies you do to to, to make sure that, you know, we know it's not just bringing people in, right? It's keeping them and developing them.
3: Well, that's a really broad question, but thank you. Um, (laughs) You have three minutes. (laughs) We have to make sure that our infrastructure, our managers are trained and educated on the importance of diversity, on the importance of inclusion. So once we get the workforce or the employee in, How are they being treated what opportunities are we giving them that's going to keep them um, interested in growing now there are two sides of the equation here one is the construction craft workforce that's one thing but then there's the professional side again our admin side the accountants the um hr people the it people the marketing people that are out there making sure that they too have a ladder or a pathway of moving forward and being able to access um, opportunities that come their way and making sure that when they put in for those transfers or those promotions or when they're going through their um, employee reviews that they're talking about, you know, how they want to grow. And if there is access to move that employee up, we definitely do it. You know, because when we look across the company today, um, it's, it's very diverse. Um, and there is you know, the opportunity, but again, it's for the managers and making sure that they are in tune, abreast of the workforce today. Because it is different than what it was 25 years ago. It's different than what it was you know, 10 years ago. And today with the workforce, with the, um, I'm not gonna get in trouble here, but with the millennials, <laughs> <laughs> keeping that attractive to them, you know, because I've been with Swinton 35 years. You know, and when I go around and do whatever t- with training I do, do when I say 35 years? I mean, the room falls out. I say, you work this? because the workforce is changing jobs like every five years or every couple of years. Yeah. So how do you yeah. p- embrace that long term? There's a career here with the 401ks, with the pensions, with the good health benefits, um, with the good um, extra incentive um, advancement that can happen in uh, your development with the company. Mm-hmm. But it's, paying, it's making sure your managers are prepared to deal with this diverse workforce that is coming their way.
1: Well, Denise, we've talked a lot about jobs, good jobs, bad jobs. I mean, how can we define quality jobs? What are quality jobs? And then how can we ensure that we're creating them? So uh,
5: I think the mayor talked about it earlier. It's not uh, jo- quality jobs or can you support your family? Right, And that means that you have family-supporting um, wages. We look at it as, as prevailing wages. Uh, Davis-Bacon, uh, do you have uh, benefits? Do you have health care, retirement? I mean, when you think about the middle class, and the, once we once had a middle class, these were, this was built on folks that were in unions when we had a larger union sector that had the benefits, that had the good wages, that had a career advancement, that had continuing education, to continue to do skill development and upskilling and, and ladders, they could see ladders of advancement. That's what makes for a, a, a good job, as opposed to what we see, particularly in infrastructure sector. There's a lot of, you know, paying folks under the table and paying them for not giving them any benefits. And, and as we talked about where jobs are, uh, it's sort of a circus tent. You know, you're in business today, fold the tent yeah. until you find the next job. And it's a, it's a, it's a struggle to figure out how to, how to piece this together and provide care, uh, benefits that carry with you no matter what job you're on. And that's why the, the sort of the union um, sector has been so valuable because they provide for those benefits whether you're in work today or, or not. And they provide the career skill development. They spend $1 billion a year on education and training of their members. One billion based on private money. This is not coming out of the government. Some of the best skilled training, training you'll ever see with modern equipment. So that's what we are looking for when we talk about quality jobs, and it's, it's a struggle for folks that are in the community because I remember our coalition in San Francisco. We had a huge battle with the labor unions, and this is what we do, okay? We have these conversations across the divide, And, you know, the union, the community activists, we wanted large numbers of jobs, right? This is going to be our first um, project, energy project. We wanted a large number of jobs. The building trade said, well, you've got a choice. You have either job quality or job quantity. Now, if you want job quality, we will guarantee that when your workers are finished, there will be a fewer number of them, but we'll give them more hours. We'll give them the next three jobs. And I think it was you know, Rick who talked about, you know, how do you make sure that you're going to actually journey in, all right? So you go from apprenticeship to agent. You have to have you know, the hours. And so they guaranteed in our community benefit agreement, um, the community workforce agreement, that there would be a certain number of hours, but we lost the, 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 the numbers that the community wanted, but it was that, that, ba- that trade-off. So um, we have to learn each other um, in terms of you know, how the building trades see the world and how the community sees the world and and, and try and develop a a way to negotiate a future for our young people and not so young people.
1: And that's a really good point, right? I think so much we focus on the numbers and the investment and we don't, I guess maybe that's a little short-sighted, we don't think about the path, the pathway, right? And that might, we talked about the marketing problem with construction jobs, you know, that it's that circus tent Perception that makes people think, well, you know, you know, I, I, I got to make as much money as I can because there's no path forward. So maybe if we rethink the way, we rethink that. You know, maybe Merredge, you can talk about how maybe community benefit agreements have sort of helped um, the quantity versus quality. Um, creating
4: a pathway for people to move forward in in jobs. Sure. And uh, Denise sort of hit on it, and I I want to cover our community investment agreements also require the EOA project partners to invest in the training and development programs um, that we've been able to leverage with partners at the table, uh, whether it's Camden County College, the Union Organization for Social Services, Uh, and others again because government is restricted on the funding that we have we know what the needs are I know that we need to have workforce development programs for our residents uh, for the adults but also looking at what do we do differently for our youth Uh, because as Rick mentioned, every child is not going from cradle to college to career. Some children are gonna go from cradle to career and then maybe college, which quite frankly was my story coming out of high school. And we're looking at how we retool one of our public high schools, our traditional public high schools as a career and technical education academy. And so, you know, looking at the industry forecast with employers that are in the region, and what their um, expectations and what they're gonna be hiring for in the future is where we want to start training our young people and creating that pipeline so that they're eligible to work in the medical field or or to work in urban planning. Uh, A lot of our children are underexposed and a lot of the parents and grandparents have been underexposed. So I'll just use the example of myself. I'll put myself out there. Although I came from a two-parent household, I was raised by my grandparents, I wanted to be a fashion designer. But had I known about urban planning, which I found out about you know, as I got more involved in government and in community organizing and community planning with the Hope Six when I was a councilwoman, I would have done that differently. My grandmother said, you're gonna get a job in government because you're gonna starve to death as a fashion designer. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's really how I landed in government. But again, I think exposing our young people um, to careers that are maybe what they think out of their reach, but then also showing them the pathway or how they achieve that dream and that goal. The other benefit we have um, in Camden is we have a very active um, eds and meds um, collaborative and task force. And just last year, and I know we've talked a lot about construction jobs, but let me go to the, the health sciences field. Just last year, we launched a career training um, program for medical assistance in collaboration with our, high uh, not high schools, but our hospitals, uh, Cooper University Hospital, Our Lady of Lords, and Virtua. Again, exposing young people uh, to careers in the healthcare industry, and many of them that went through that program started with a job, $30,000, which is not bad for someone 19 years old, plus health benefits and a pension. So, you know, having a quality job looks very much Like, you know, making sure you have access to health benefits, which is priceless, but also having retirement (laughs) options and having those conversations with our residents. So, yeah.
1: Adi, we want to get you in on this. Can you, uh, in the work that you've done, you're seeing these shortages. Are you seeing hope sort of on the pipeline? Are you seeing any, what are you seeing in terms of, of getting these jobs filled or training programs that are out there? Or, you know, is there hope? Are we going to be able to build all these buildings? Or are we going to have a great infrastructure package, but no one there to work on it?
2: Yeah, I think the I think the positive side here, look, there's a there's a ton of work being done on workforce development. And, and really, I think you're hearing it more eloquently than, than I could say it. Um, the... What, what we're kind of, or at least on my side in particular, is tracking a little bit closer is, is that there's a growing aggregate demand here. To build out the American economy from a physical perspective, um, you know we are very fortunate in this country that we have uh, a growing population. Many of our developed economy peers don't. Um, that means you're going to need to have more buildings. We're also seeing a tremendous amount of infrastructure getting to the end of its useful life. So um, what may you know some jobs are going to qualify as construction, some are going to qualify just as maintenance and operations. But there's a <coughs> ton of work that needs to be done out there, and that's naturally going to filter in to the labor market, right? The question is how, and I, th- I think we're, we're hearing this on the the last previous question, right, is how do we make sure people know about it, right? And, you know, again, I'm a little bit outside my comfort zone even saying this, but it's what some of my other colleagues at the Brookings Metro program are looking into is how do we make sure that those specific pathways, um, whether it's borrowing from like the European apprentice model, right, or, or whatever it might be, that folks understand they don't need to go to a four-year college to get a really good um, sustaining job for them and their families. And, and that's really out there in this sector, but I don't, I don't think we're doing a good enough job pushing it out. Why I'm optimistic, though, is that if you've got that aggregate demand growing, Folks are going to go out hiring, right? And that tends yeah. to kind of filter down nicely. But that alone isn't enough to make sure that we're protecting families and workers to make sure that they're they're really connecting to the full opportunities that are available. Yeah,
5: okay. I'd like to also raise a, a challenge that I'm, I'm not sure if people are tracking, but part of uh, you know the good news is that uh, we have with mayors like the uh, one on our panel who are really looking at local economic development and and how to make their infrastructure investment benefit their residents. So that's the good news. It's happening all across the country at the local level. But what's happening now is that there's this thing called state preemption. Are you familiar with that? So these are state preemption policies where states are saying that mayors cannot put local hire and local sourcing policies in place mm-hmm. so Ohio implemented that so we've been working in Ohio to have you know economic inclusion and now in New Orleans introduced legislation so in many of these states where their um, uh, conservative governors and legislators are advancing state preemption which is limiting our ability to advance economic inclusion and so investments will continue to go to people that have historically, been able to access these resources. So it's a new battle, a new challenge that you're going to have to well, track. I don't know how your governor's doing there, but uh, it's, you
0: know, it is, it's beginning to sweep, sweep the country.
5: Yes. As soon
4: as he starts start making traction nearby,
1: <laughs> well, connecting the dots. Well, one of the big, I guess, one of the biggest questions we have there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of excitement but how is it going to happen? How are we going to make these investments? So, Adi, I'm giving you the big question. Um, Tell us some of the ways that we might be able to pay for this, um, and can those policies, those programs be structured to to get at this question of making sure we have good quality jobs, we put folks to work. So what are sort of the alternatives for, for paying for these bridges and filling these potholes and fixing the grid?
2: Yeah, this is (laughs) uh, is like the worst question, right? It's the the money, right? It's the money. Uh, You know, um, I think we're at a really troubling spot right now in the country on infrastructure investment. And I want to emphasize here um, that... I myself, my like my personal hat, my professional hat, the institution I work for and a lot of our colleagues in town, we support more infrastructure investment, right? It is good for the country. It is uh, the same thing as you investing in your 401k, right? Is your down payment on the future. Um, on top of the fact that there's really demonstrated need today. Um, the problem is, is that we have not shown a willingness at the national level to pay for stuff, right? And we're often trying to find new ways to, uh, we're looking for new ways to find magical, like um, pots of gold at the end of these proverbial infrastructure rainbows, right? And they're, they're not necessarily there. We really need to step up. Now, um, on the good side, we've seen a lot of states and localities really step up to pay more for infrastructure on their own. Um, and this is to say nothing of the capital markets, which I don't necessarily want to get into just yet. I think it's more of almost like a public question, the way you're posing it, which is, which is good. Um, states have raised their gas taxes at really impressive clips recently. We've seen ballot referenda pass at about... a three quarters, so like a 70 to 75% Mm -hmm. clip across the country to pay for more local infrastructure. And some of you probably heard of most recent um, uh, measures passing in Los Angeles, in Seattle, billions and billions of local control. And that's just for transportation. the, so there's a willingness to pay for infrastructure at the local level. I'm not sure why it hasn't fully translated here to DC yet. Um, and to be transparent, and I don't think I'm saying anything that's, that's crazy or, or politically even motivated, is that the skinny budget that came out from this administration looks to make more cuts on infrastructure. So um, there may be some plan coming later, but what we have to work with right now is actually cuts to infrastructure. So um, something isn't adding up here, right? We need more infrastructure, everyone supports it, states and localities through their constituencies are finding support for it, yet somehow our federal, um, uh, both legislators most notably frankly, are not voting in support um, yet for more infrastructure investment. We're going to need to find a way to break through. And if I, if I knew that answer, right, not only would I be a rich person, but I wouldn't be even sitting here right now, we would, it would just be done, right? And, and yeah. so it's gonna take a lot of action from a lot of folks. I do believe to try to kind of connect it back here is that this the more we can connect workforce folks to the infrastructure investment side and recognize that making those investments leads to better labor market opportunities, and in particular can invest in communities, um, is really valuable. So this, this messaging needs to be hit from all sides. To be transparent, and they do a great job, so give them credit, it can't just be the engineers saying, hey, we should invest more, right? It should actually be everyone who has a, who has a stake in this one-tenth of our labor market to say, look, we can really benefit from more investment here. Yeah,
1: definitely. Well, now it's your turn. Um, I want to give a shout out to the people that are listening on the live stream. Um, we're going to have your questions. I know you have lots of them. I can see, I can see them in your faces. <coughs> so we'll have folks walking around with microphones. And for folks that are listening via live stream, we've got a couple different ways for you to participate. Um, you can tweet your questions using the hashtag TalkGoodJobs. So please do that. Um, you can also text them to this number, 202 802 six four four seven let me give that to you one more time 202 802 6447 hashtag talk good jobs
2: okay I see hands hey Great. how are you if uh, if we already have an infrastructure passage a package passed this Congress um, if if you could name the top one, two, maybe three strategies that you'd like to see incorporated uh, to address the workforce challenges, what would those be?
5: Well, for me, I would probably uh, want to make sure that uh, the contracting process is well-defined as not low-bid but high-value, right? So a low-bid, high-value contracts allow you to incorporate opportunities for uh, local procurement and local hiring, and they evaluate the contract not just on how cheap is it going to be, but how well you're gonna pay your your workers and whether there are benefits, and that's a major structural change that I think really needs to be embedded at the local, state, and federal level, high-value contracting versus low-bid contracting. I
2: have a question from Twitter. Women represent three percent of construction jobs and nine percent of transportation. Are there any lessons on how to be more
3: inclusive?
4: So I'll take a stab at that question. I think you know one of the ways that we can be more inclusive of women in the non-traditional uh, work environment is making sure that we get that message out. Right, that this opportunity. Um, is there for them, obviously they would have to uh, deal with some barriers and challenges, but it, it's not uncommon to women uh, to have face barriers or challenges to untraditional uh, settings, and namely public office, right? We need to see more women in public office, but unless we're having those conversations, unless we are engaging women uh, in ways that, uh, you know, that support uh, their visioning or their dreams for themselves to work in the construction industry, then again we'll continue to see the low statistics uh, that we're seeing today. So I think it's engagement of uh, women uh, in non-traditional fields.
1: Lots of hands, this is great.
6: Well, right now we're, you know, essentially these statistical numbers back and forth, and yet, my background's in architecture, and I graduated in the 70s. And I see less presence of minorities in offices and places where I go. And so we always have this conversation. We always feel like it's government. You know, everyone says government's interfering. That's what we're hearing now. Like, Let's get these regulations away or whatever. But monitoring, like you're saying, and the government pressure is what's making it happen. And my bigger question is to so the firms and bigger places that don't see this mix that is, is the economic benefit for everything. What is their consciousness? To all, why is it always this wall that we have to be breaking against to make it happen? When if in the economics of the country, in the effort of the country, this is what it needs to take to lift every boat. That There's a lack of sincerity, I feel like, on the other side of the equation. It's always making people like the, the mayor or, or your group have to push back. And I feel like it's going to get harder or not easier and, and I just wonder how you feel about that kind of engagement and how it's going, good or bad, for you, Mayor. Well, I can
4: tell you that um, we're in uncharted territory, um, you know, with the new president, President Trump. Uh, I think we're all, you know, watching MSNBC, CNN and to see what the latest uh, developments are. And, you know, just hearing the proposed budget cuts uh, gives great concerns for me. Uh, but it also re-energizes me that we have to continue this, this social justice, civil rights march fight to make sure that there's inclusion uh, in a number of arenas. And so for those of us who have made it successfully, I think we are all obligated to give back, to reach back and pull uh, you know, the next um, you know, architect, the next mayor, uh, the next developer. We have to bring our folks along. If we don't go for our folks and get them engaged and let them know what the possibilities are, and also make sure that they're on the pathway uh, to getting their credentials so that they're ready to be hired. I think that work rests upon our shoulders. That's just me personally.
5: And and I would just add one other thing. I I also think it's become the economic interests of major developers because the aging workforce is real. Um, And pretty soon the pipeline is gonna be filled with the demographics of the country. And that means that there has to be an affirmative outreach to bringing along folks to get into this sector if there's going to be a business, if there's going to be an architecture and engineering and construction industry. You, you as you know, employers, need to reach out and figure out where your workforce is coming from and begin to partner with communities and with, with elected officials to make that pipeline more robust.
6: Uh, Excuse me. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I have a question. So I am a director of a a center in Southeast DC that has um, four CBOs located there. Um, And one of the things that we have a struggle with is really changing the narrative for the residents that live in the area around our center and getting businesses to really kind of recognize that, you know, even though there are labels of you know low skilled you know uneducated disadvantaged that you know the residents that we work with are highly skilled they're, they're they they have aptitude you know and they are ready for work and i want to just kind of pick you all's brains to just figure out what ways have you worked to kind of change that narrative as well in the work that you do.
4: So uh, in response to your question, so I think, you know, as the leader of your organization, reaching out to businesses directly, hearing from you uh, about how your CBO can partner with uh, a private company firm that may be in the area, what are your employment needs? Um, and that was some of the questions that we asked employers as we were thinking about what type of customized job training programs do we need to put together for residents? because we didn't want to train just for the sake of training, right? We want to train and make sure that there's an end goal where we can have not just the training but the placement and the retention piece. And uh, so you know I would ask I would suggest that, you know maybe starting to broker those those conversations, um, finding out what the barriers are for access, uh, if it makes sense whether or not to involve you know, your elected officials in having that conversation to, to strengthen the importance of uh, making sure that there's local hires, local sourcing. Uh, those would be some of the recommendations. The other piece that I think is important as we talk about prosperity and, and making sure that residents are working, I think we also need to embed in our programs financial literacy. So that's on budgeting. How do you uh, prepare a resident to become a homeowner? Credit counseling. And so getting them a, a, a full-rounded program so that they, too, can achieve the, the American dream. So as they're climbing, they have their own goals and aspirations. Well, how do you help them uh, to create that pathway? And I think uh, you know, what's important is financial literacy.
5: And, and I would add just one other thing as well. Um, people hire people they know. And so one of the programs we had, uh, our local LA director uh, had an internship program where there's was a $20 billion school construction initiative and uh, for the community colleges, and the requirement this community benefit requirement was to bring high school students into the job site, whether you're an architect or you're engineer construction, so that they could see what the work was like in the field. So they took academic work at the high school. They got community college credit. But they also started working with employers. And so the narrative changed because they saw, oh, my God, these people are smart. Um, You know, they're they're ambitious. And so being able to to provide those internships and linkages and relationships and hiring networks will be key on both sides to get to understand the industry and to understand that people are hungry for opportunity.
3: And to piggyback on what Denise and what Demar just said, one of the strategies that um, my firm deals with is that we actively participate on advisory boards, if not on the board of directors of the CBOs. Because once we know the expertise or the um, population of that CBO, when we get ready to hire our first Um, outreach is to the CBO who can you refer to us because we participate on their boards and a lot of our clients where we work you know have to answer to the mayors and the mayors have the community-based organizations that if we're in the mix you know we're giving back so again it's partnering with the CBOs from a private perspective
0: Hi, I'm Terry Bergman with the National Association of Workforce Boards. It's clear that we already don't have enough people working in the infrastructure field. Um, We talked about the fact that people were retiring and perhaps if Trump, you know, goes, keeps up his promise, an increase in infrastructure jobs. You've talked about uh, reaching out to people who haven't been hired in that field before. You've talked about, getting parents to understand that this is a valuable direction to go, do we have any plans about how we're going to train all these people with the skills that are needed to work in infrastructure?
2: I mean, I can jump in really quick. That's a great question. Um, You know, there's, I'll just say this, There's, um, there's no question that as part of a broader national infrastructure package, if it doesn't include workforce, if it's just dollars, whether that's through tax credits or just investment, and we pass the buck purely to states and localities, is a massive missed opportunity. There are folks um, who work in every single one of the federal agencies that have infrastructure uh jurisdiction um actually I don't know about the FCC but I would assume them too um that uh recognize the importance of workforce right so the question is does the hill whenever they write out what it's going to be or do they include that as part of it um you know I can only speak for what I heard in terms of keeping promises right that there's a whole web of probably a whole separate meeting somewhere in town right now on what buy american and hire american means but if that hire american isn't for everyone and isn't to make sure people all peoples can get hired then it is a just such a missed opportunity. So, I'm hopeful that whoever's going to be the bill writers, and it's, it, I have my own ideas on it. it's probably going to be more than one bill, frankly. It's too complicated to do one, but whatever it looks like, if they don't do that, then it's, it's, um, it really, it's going to affect us in the long run, probably.
1: Yeah, I, I really
5: don't think there's a, a real understanding of what it's going to take to get the job done. Um, and when I look at the Department of Labor budget, and on the one hand, They're maintaining proposed apprenticeship programs, which is a good thing. The not-so-good thing is that they're cutting the youth bill programs and the ones that are the feeders, you know, Mm -hmm. out-of-school youth that provide the soft skills and, you know, the basic, I mean, you have to pass algebra to get, you know, my God, can you guys pass algebra? You know, to to get into these apprenticeship programs, and they're cutting the programs that are helping young people with those skills, so we're cutting the pipeline short, and it's... uh, be quite interesting to how this unfolds.
3: Another thing that is getting cut short is that these agencies do not have the staff to go out and do the proper monitoring if compliance is being held. I know a lot of um, entities, they don't have the workforce, and the construction's going on, but they don't have the people to go out there and hold the contractor's feet to the fire and say, you're out of compliance. Show me your 16 steps. Here's a show calls meeting. <laughs>
6: It's not fair. So question I see, here. Yeah. Um,
1: I see so many hands. And, and, and thank you. We Thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> but we do have to wrap things up. So I wanted to be able to give the panelists um, a final word. Um, I, who okay. I don't know who would like to start. If we want to go end to end or right. <laughs>
5: stay the course, folks. Um, my one recommendation policy is, is, is high-value contracting. We
4: can get
2: there. Yeah. Just a quick thank you again to Aspen for having us. This is an important conversation. I think we're going to keep hearing a lot more about, about working in infrastructure, not just investing in it.
4: And again, I want to thank the Aspen Institute and for being on this wonderful panel and the conversation. And we will continue to be innovative in our approach to transforming Camden and people's lives. And we will continue to be watchful of what's coming out of Washington, D.C., but also looking for um, opportunities, again, to leverage resources so that we can put people to work.
3: And I echo everything that was just said here. And one of the things I'd like to leave with, um, there's a gentleman who I met years ago named Art Fletcher and he wrote the uh, Philadelphia Plan, and there was a statement that he said when he retired, he goes, look, I'm an old man, I'm passing the torch, you young folks, you gotta keep on running, because <laughs> the race is not over. So now that I'm about to retire, I'm gonna pass the torch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you all so much. Thank you to the Institute. Thank you to all.
3: It's you serving with you. Yeah. yeah,
4: great serving with you. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I'll Wonderful guess.
2: I will I put that thing in. Oh, with the